There's a lot to celebrate. Uh, jobs well done. Yesterday, we had an opportunity, 10 churches here in Santa Ana to gather together and work in an underserved neighborhood in Santa Ana called the Pico Lowell neighborhood. Maybe you're familiar with it down First Street, left on flower. And here's a quick photo of just our beginnings of yesterday morning. There was 200 of us from 10 different churches, including several of you that are in this room, who woke up, got there at 7.30, and went to work. And I just thank you for that. And we're truly better together, not just as a church family here at Calvary, but as the greater church here in Orange County, as we point people to Jesus. And yesterday was just a neat opportunity through the demonstration of love to point people towards the love of Christ. And we'll be having more. I think the next one's going to be on Valentine's weekend in February, so stay tuned for that. But just wanted to celebrate. God is doing great things here in Orange County, and particularly in the city of Santa Ana. But it's not just contained here to Santa Ana. Uh, overseas, and I forgive me, this photo is a little blurry here. I just pulled this off Facebook a couple hours ago. But this is Craig Bryson, who's part of our church family here. And Craig and four other elders and two married couples got on an airplane on Friday and traveled to our sister church in Lusnia, Albania, Way of Peace Church. And this is Craig. He had about 24 hours notice on this that he was preaching this Sunday. <laughs> so here he is preaching to the church, our sister church uh, in Lusnia, Albania. And I just celebrate that. That God is up to great things here in Orange County, but it's not, as I said, limited to that. God is up to great things throughout the world, and he's using, he could use anybody, but he chooses to use us, and I'm thankful and humbled by that. So this week be praying for Craig and Neil, Dave Baker, David Herring, Harold Stevens, Bobby and Tricia Perry, David and Kendra Kruckenberg as they do some really key leadership training to our churches in Albania. The very first elders of this church are going to be nominated in the next couple weeks, and these guys are going to help train them. So it's really cool what God is doing. So that's that. But God's doing good things in this morning, too. And so open your Bibles if you have them. If you don't, there's a Bible in the seat rack in front of you. And turn with me to the great book of Ephesians, as Laura mentioned. Ephesians chapter 1. As we continue our series, Better Together, looking at Paul's challenge to the church. Ephesians 1, look at verse 7, and we'll just go a few verses to verse 12. And I'll read it, and you can just follow along. This is what it says. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him... Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. A couple other places in the scriptures, it says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. 
And so this passage that we're opening up here this morning on a day where it's supposed to be 101 and fantasy football scores have started to already click into your phones. <laughs> this matters. This passage matters because the word of God is eternal. But as you read it for just the first time, just first blush at it, I'm wondering if it doesn't matter enough for us. Because we look at it and we go, okay, yeah, yeah, redemption, forgiveness of sins, God's will, praise of the glory. Yeah, that, that, that's good. That's nice. I like it. But I want to push us to go beyond this is nice. To go, this is revolutionary. This changes our lives. This should move us and stir us. But my thought is, if you were handed as you walked in this morning by one of our hosts an umbrella and they said hey this is my <laughs> it's kind of a sorry umbrella <laughs> this is my gift to you i want to i want to give this to you as you walk in and you kind of took it and said okay thank you i guess i appreciate it and you kind of held it to your side because no one else in here has an umbrella and kind of felt a little embarrassed by it and when you sat down in your seat you kind of put it a couple seats away because what i don't know what to do with an umbrella uh, You wouldn't appreciate the gift of an umbrella if someone handed it to you as you walked in this morning. But what if you were handed this umbrella this morning and as the host handed it to you, they said, hey, about halfway through the service, there's a pipe up here in the ceiling. It's just going to totally burst and it's going to be flooding this entire auditorium. But this umbrella will keep you dry. In fact, maybe even someone that you like next to you could keep them dry as well, too. Like all of a sudden... You'd understand the purpose, the meaning, the whole story of this umbrella, and you'd be thankful for it. You would appreciate it in a whole new way. And I feel like that's what we have to do with Ephesians 1, this passage we just read. We have to look at the bigger story in order to really let this passage move us. So, let's turn a few places. Go from your Bible to Ephesians 1 and go all the way to the first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis. I want to hear pages turning or phones scrolling. Genesis chapter 3 is where I want to show us. Genesis 3, if you're familiar with it, is the story of the fall of humanity. It's probably the saddest story in the entire Bible. It is the saddest story in the entire Bible. But we need to read it this morning in order to appreciate Ephesians 1. So in Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you'll die. And then listen to the lie here in verse four. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. 
They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, listen to this, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? Verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid myself. This is devastating. God creates man and woman in his image. He creates them and he says, it is good. They have perfect communion with each other and with God. They walk with God. And then Satan comes in with his lies and he introduces this temptation to Adam and Eve. And they, as you read here, fall into sin. And sin is now introduced into our reality, into our lives. In this moment, this is when it really happened. And all of us in this day are feeling the effects of what happened in the garden. We are entered into and living in broken relationships. First of all, with God and then with each other. We have inherited a sin nature, even precious Eden up here because she's born from the DNA of her parents and her parents, parents and generation of generation all the way back to Adam and Eve is and has a sinful nature. And because of that, we're cut off from God. And we're in desperate, desperate need of being saved, of being redeemed. We need a redeemer. We desperately need a redeemer. The whole story of the Bible is about that. In fact, go from Genesis 3 and flip over to the middle of the Old Testament to Psalm 53. Psalm 53, verse 1. And I'll read it out loud. Just follow. It says, The fool has said in his heart, this is Psalm 53, 1, that there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. Verse 2, God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them, listen to this, every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. Corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, maybe you had a late night last night, so I want us to see this. Look on the screen. Verse 3 here of Psalm 53. Can we say this out loud together? Okay, here we go. Just follow with me. Say it with me. Here we go. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Not even one. Not even one. Go from Psalm 53. Now go to Isaiah 53. It's to the right. A couple books over. Isaiah 53. I promise we'll eventually get back to Ephesians 1. (laughs) Isaiah 53. Look at simply verse 6. I'm just going to read the first half as we build our case here. Isaiah 53, 6 says this. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Again, Inherited sin nature, but we're also acting on that nature and living in sin. Each of us, like a sheep, has 
gone astray, wandered from God, wandered from the true shepherd. And then look at Romans chapter three. Now spill into the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then you hit Romans. Look at Romans three. This passage, maybe you've read it all your life. Maybe you've never heard it before, but listen to it with fresh eyes. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Are you included in all? Yes. We all are. We're all under the same umbrella. Get it? I have an umbrella. Okay. And there's deep consequences for this. There's deep consequences that we're all under the same boat. We're all under the guilt of sin. Look at Romans chapter 6. And again, it's a verse 23. Romans 6, 23. It simply says this. For the wages of sin is death. What this means is that we all, under the same category, sinners, started in the garden, continues here today to our lives, we're under the sentence of death, physical and spiritual death. Physical death entered our world in the garden, and we've experienced it ever since. That's why when someone dies, whether they're a teenager or they're 95, there's something in us that says, this is not right. Because death is an intruder into the world that God has created. So we have physical death. We all die. And we have spiritual death. Because of our sin, God is holy. He's glorified. He's perfect. He can't have sin near Him. And so we're cut off from God, spiritually dead. Our souls are dead. If we're not believers in Christ, we're dead men walking. Walking around this world looking alive, but spiritually dead. And the Scriptures say that When physical death occurs, spiritual death occurs, and it's forever. It's for eternity. That's the consequence of sin. It's a really big deal. And part of our human nature is we don't like to think about it. (laughs) I think because it's such a big thing, because the consequences are so grave that we just kind of avoid dealing with with our personal sin. In my mind, there's a few things we do to avoid accountability for sin. One is, is we deny it. I've never sinned. I'm not a sinner. And it makes me think of the little toddler who gets into the cookies and his mom shows up in the kitchen and goes, hey, have you eaten any cookies? No, I I haven't. I I haven't eaten any cookies. I I don't, maybe, maybe, I haven't. It's like, how ridiculous is that? The evidence is all over us that we're sinners. And yet we deny it. No, no, I've, I've never done that. It's just like this. Or we blame somebody else. Orange County culture. How many of you have been in a fender bender and the person pops out of the car holding their neck saying like, you did this to me. And that's the culture we live in, right? It's our nature. No, someone else made me sin. It's their fault. 
If it wasn't for how my dad raised me, I would have never entered into this and made these choices. If I hadn't had this perfect circumstance, I would have never been tempted in the first place. We blame other people and other situations. Or we point to someone worse than us. I don't know if you're familiar with Bill Cosby, and I won't get into all of the details here, but at this point, Bill Cosby is probably worse than all of us as far as his public exposure of sin. And so we go, well, my sin, yeah, maybe I do have sin. I I can't deny it anymore, and I can't blame everybody for my sin. But at least I'm not that guy. And we point to whoever it is. Or another strategy for us to avoid sin is we just hide from it. We just think that we can hide. And I found this. I don't know if you'll think it's funny like I do. But uh, it's a deer with moss on its grass on its head. And it's like, I'm so hidden right now. The hunters are never going to find me. (laughs) And that's us, isn't it? We think we've covered up our sin. We think we've made it airtight. And yet it's totally exposed. God sees everything. And even those that we have relationships with, thinking that we're hiding things from them, we don't. Everything eventually comes out. And so we try to deal with sin by pushing it off, blaming others, pointing at somebody else, hiding. And then this one's big for, I think, every person here. It's repay. We try to repay our sins. The fifth one. I must do something to pay back my sin. So I'll accept a little bit of punishment or I'll work it off. I know what I'll do. I'll go to 30 Love Santa Ana Saturdays and I'll be the hardest worker at Love Santa Ana. And maybe that will kind of pay off some of the guilt and shame that I I feel for my sin. But the problem is that none of these deal with sin appropriately. It doesn't work. And the reason for that is because what Jesus says in the Gospels In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Recently, there was discovered a journal from a slave who came from Africa here to the United States. And it's been a wonderful find to uncover the thinking of one man as he traveled from Capture, being captured in Africa to being brought over here. In his journal, he writes this. We were handcuffed in pairs with iron staples and bolts with a short chain about a foot long uniting the handcuffs and their wearers in pairs. In this manner, we were chained alternately by the right and the left hand. And the poor man to whom I was thus ironed wept like an infant. This is our story, isn't it? Maybe we haven't dealt with the horrible, horrible reality that slavery, the history of slavery in this world and what slaves experienced. But we have a spiritual slavery that because of our sin, we can't figure out how to avoid it, push it around, not deal with it. We have to deal with it. We're stuck in this slavery, Jesus says. And so the result is just hopelessness. Despair, apathy, we're stuck, we're slaves, that's our identity, that's, that's just going to be our reality from now on. And then we read Ephesians 1, and we look specifically at verse 7, 
with all that context of Genesis 3 and Psalm 53 and Isaiah 53 and the Romans passages and Jesus's words in John 8, we now read Ephesians 1, 7 in a different light. For it says in him, we have the redemption through his blood, through the forgiveness of our trespasses. Amen. Amen. You were a dead person walking. You had no hope. You were destined for a lifetime of slavery. And if you've placed your faith in him, in Jesus, this is now your story. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. This is your future, your hope, and the present reality. This should move us. I felt like I just made a putt at the 18th. That was very polite, but I understand our culture. (laughs) This is revolutionary. This isn't old news. This is good news. The word redemption was a word in Paul's day. Paul's the author of Ephesians that meant to be brought out of, to be paid for, to be liberated, to be set free. So as a slave to sin, you've been liberated, set free. Paid for with a price. Imagine you're a slave and you're up for auction and people are starting to bid for your services. And someone steps forward and says, I will pay the highest price. And yet when I pay the price for their life, I'm not going to have them come work for me. I'm going to set them free. And the auctioneer looks up and is startled and says, okay, well, that's going to cost you everything. It's time to pay. And Jesus steps forward and says, I will pay with my blood. The ultimate sacrifice. Jesus lays down his life for yours. When it comes to talking about blood, I feel like this is where for some Christianity gets weird. Like blood. What's this all about blood? In fact, in Paul's day in the first century, there was a rumor going on around Rome that Christians, hey, there's these new guys and they're following this guy, Jesus. They're called the way and they drink blood. They get together in these secret groups and and they drink blood. And that wasn't happening. What they were doing is they were celebrating communion and remembering the shed blood of Christ. And yet this rumor existed. Nowadays, we're in like the zombie apocalypse. (laughs) Maybe blood's not as weird as it used to be. But it is still kind of weird. And so why is there so much talk about blood when it comes to Christianity? Well, it's for this. One is that in the book of Leviticus, Jesus sets up the value of blood. When he said, or God says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for life. This is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 17. And so blood equaled life. To lose your blood meant you lost your life. To have something pay for your life, you had to have blood shed. 
And so God, in his mighty wisdom, sets up this sacrificial system. And he says, if you take and explains it in the book of Leviticus, in fact, a chapter before this one in Leviticus 7, 16, we read all these details about you take a bull and the priest sheds the blood of the bull and then purifies himself. Then he goes and takes a goat and then a ram and then he sheds that blood for the purification of the people. In fact, on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, Jews around the world will celebrate Yom Kippur which Leviticus 16, 17, 19, and other places explain. Yom Kippur is part of the culmination of high holy days for those that are Jewish. It's 10 days of purification. Finally, you get to Yom Kippur, and it's your day of atonement. It's the day when you have your sins forgiven. In fact, secular Jews, it's, made, it's, it's probably like their one day they come to the temple in our modern era. In Israel this Tuesday, this Tuesday evening, all of Israeli broadcasts shut down. There's no radio, no TV, no one drives. It's like this crazy phenomenon where like entire cities are just quiet. And so they celebrate Yom Kippur today. It's rooted back in Leviticus 16, which says you should do this annually. And this is a binding thing. And so God sets up this sacrificial system. And so year after year, the people come. And they go through the priest and God in his grace accepts their sacrifice, the blood sacrifice, not because the blood is worthy, but simply because God is worthy and he has grace on the people. And so he wiped away and cleansed their sins. But then the next year they'd come back and then they'd come back. So if you live 50 years, you've been in this repetitive cycle of having the blood of sacrifices wash away and cleanse your sins. But it wasn't eternal. It wasn't even beyond the next 12 months. But all of it was a foreshadowing of Jesus. For in Hebrews, we read these beautiful words. By His will, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Life-giving right there. Jesus accomplished what the Old Testament sacrifices were simply foreshadowing. That there would be one whose blood was enough to cleanse our sins. Not just for the next 12 months, but for our lives. For eternity. Only one could do this. And that would be the God-man who entered into our world and lived the life that none of us could live. You see, it says, all have sinned. But Jesus never sinned. Jesus was set apart. And so Jesus went to the cross and his blood was shed for our lives to cover us. It's incredible. And then the next words of Ephesians 1 say, for the forgiveness of sins. I want you to think for a moment. What's the first thing that comes in your mind when you think of your biggest regret? The one thing in your life that, boy, this was my lowest moment with God. The consequences of this choice forever impacted me. In fact, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about this one situation. We all have that. We have many of those, actually. But the one thing that comes to your mind right now, whatever that is, I want you to know that if you are in Jesus Christ... It has been forgiven. 
You have been washed clean. Not because of you're such a good person, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's been paid for. Jesus on the cross, one of his last words were, it is finished. It's done. That big thing that happened to you that you did, that you hope no one ever finds out about, or maybe the whole world has found out about, it is paid for on the cross. You have been redeemed. It's awesome. It's a game changer. And then the verse goes on. Look at Ephesians 1. Remember, we're in Ephesians. <laughs> Ephesians 1, 7, kind of part B says this. Or let me read the whole thing. It says, in him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Verse 8, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Part of the gift of being the redeemed is having God's grace lavished on us. I want you to think of this word picture of lavish like the waves. It's a hot day. Some of you will go to the beach. Imagine going down to the beach and you're just watching the waves come in. And the waves keep coming in, hitting the shore over repeatedly again and again. That's a great image of the lavish grace of God. In Him, you've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. God's grace is rich. It's pouring over you like a wave. It doesn't rescind and you're trying to chase it like, I need more of God's grace. Instead, it keeps coming to you and pouring over you moment by moment, day after day for those that are in Christ Jesus. It's incredible. Another word picture I thought of. You guys like McDonald's? Don't say. Whenever you go to McDonald's and you order breakfast, they give you these pancakes, three of them. Anybody hungry? You need, um, <laughs> these are really spongy. Um, when you go to McDonald's and you order pancakes, you get three of them like this in this tray. You can see them. And they give you a little syrup like this, right? Now, maybe this is enough for like 98% of you, but if you're like me, like this is poor, totally inadequate like for this because you pour the syrup on it and the first pancake just envelops it and that's it. And then you're like, ah, I have to go back up and get more. And there's a, usually a huge line and they charge me 50 cents. And so you pour the syrup on and oh, it's gone. I think a lot of us feel like this is God's grace. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I've received God's grace. I'm a Christian. I've been redeemed, forgiven. But I don't want to bother God. I don't want to take up too much of his grace because, I don't know, maybe there's not enough of it or maybe it'll run out for me. And I don't want to just kind of bother him. And yet, the truth of the matter is, as the word says here, that Jesus' grace is lavished on us. This is what I'm talking about. Smart and final (laughs) gallon of syrup. I'm doing this. This is what God's grace is like, like this. It's not something that we just get for a moment and then we lose. This is what God's grace is like in our lives. (laughs) 
And that's just for today. <laughs> every day, his mercies are new. Every more. I'm going to get killed for this. But every day, his mercies are new. This is the lavished grace of God. May you never look at syrup the same again. <laughs> Do you buy it? Is that... Is that the Jesus you're following? Because this is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the Jesus that you can know. The word goes on to say, in 10 and 11, <laughs> I'm going to shake everybody's hand after, that we're recipients of God's lavish grace. And then it says that we're insiders into his revealed will. That God's will ultimately is for his kingship to reign. And the kingdom is here, but it's not yet. But it's coming. One day every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus is Lord. If you want to ask yourself, am I following God's will? Look here in Ephesians 9 and 10. God's will is for his kingship to reign in your life and in this world. And so line up your life towards those things. And then part of the gift of being redeemed is we are inheritance receivers. Do you ever have that moment when you're opening your credit card statement and you're looking at how much you're owed or you have to owe? And you're like, boy, the lottery sounds really good right now. Or for fo football freaks, DraftKings, I need to like enter that. Maybe I can win a million dollars today and pay off all my debt. Like there's these moments where we're like, ah, I just wish someone would just give me an inheritance. And yet, do you understand the inheritance you have in Jesus Christ? You get to call God your father. You have access to the throne room of grace. You can call on him at any time. You have the hope of a home in heaven. This is the inheritance as followers of Jesus that we can know and receive. It's incredible. And then finally, this last verse of our section here today is that we can be hopeful worshipers. Is that we don't have to worship and duty and obligation, but based on the fact that we were slaves to sin and now we're free, we can worship with joy and strength and hope. And that's part of what we do here in this space, is we remind each other of that. Because throughout the week, life can get hard and we get focused on so many other things. And we gather here, we're better together because we remind each other, remember, you're redeemed. Remember, you have an inheritance. This is your life. Live in it. And so this is what I want us to do. As we focus on the idea of Jesus being our Redeemer, I want us to have some time together in our sections, just for a moment, just to let this hit you a little bit deeper. And so I'm going to ask you in a moment to stand up and just grab three or four people around you. Introverts in the room, do not run out. This will be helpful to you, I promise. But just simply answer this question. Based on what you know about Jesus, what you've heard about Jesus today, or what you've known about him even before you got here today, if he were to come and visit you, what would you thank him for in your life? So can we all stand up right now? Will you just pull three or four people together And let's spend a couple minutes responding to this question.
All right. Hey, let me insert myself into your discussion and just invite you to take a seat. As we continue to respond to Ephesians chapter one, there's a few ways I want to invite you to take a next step in the booklet bulletin that you received when you walked in. There's some sermon notes in there, and those are designed for you to either follow along with the sermon or even look at later and look up some of the passages on your own. But you'll see there some next steps. I believe it's on the back page there. Some ways that you could take this Sunday experience and move it beyond just a Sunday morning. One is, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you do not know if you've been bought at a price that you've been redeemed, let today be that day. Let today be the day that you make Jesus Christ the leader, the savior of your life. Christ's mercy and grace is available for you today. There's a little booklet in the seat rack in front of you and it says how to connect to God. And if you want to even just use that as a guide, make it your prayer today. Jesus, I need you. I need to be redeemed. Come into my life. I invite you to become a Christian today. Another next step for you could be getting involved in a small group. We call them life groups here. And as we depart this morning in the lobby, there'll be great opportunities for you to pick up information and, and find out what are the groups that exist here and how could I get involved in a community so I could be better together, walking through life with other Christians. And then thirdly, maybe you just have more questions about what it means to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus. And our Alpha course that takes place on Wednesday nights would be a great place for you to plug in. It's Wednesdays at 7 o'clock just here in the lobby, 6.30 in the lobby. We'd love to have you join us. And then immediately, as we respond through worship and music, 
I want to invite you to participate at our communion station. Communion, we take the bread and the juice and remember through these symbolic pieces what Jesus has done, the tremendous price that he's paid for our lives, shedding his blood, dying on the cross. But communion, although it is rather somber to reflect on what Christ has done, is also a place of joy. As we remember that the grave could not defeat Jesus, that he rose again, that he conquered death and he is alive today. And so the communion table is a joyous table as well. So approach with joy. And then at the tables, there's also a place to give. God owns everything, including our finances. So it's a great way to respond and worship to him. And then myself and a few others will be at prayer points over here to our left or your right. We'd love to pray with you if you have a need during this time. So let me pray right now and then we'll respond and worship through music. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word is eternal and it means and it matters something to our lives here today. God, may we not walk out of here and just move to the next thing. Do business with us now. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.